0: Head to com slash merch. Every purchase helps
1: us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch
0: today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great
0: movies. And some stinkers.
1: Well, true. But, you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit the slash originals. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night both part of our Couples on the Run series.
0: We talked about No Country for Old Men, the Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com
1: adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book.
0: In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know. Maybe.
1: We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There.
0: Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself.
1: <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor. Because his chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump, adapted from Winston Groom's novel. Plus, Apollo 13, based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell.
0: And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief all based on books.
1: Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreal.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game, video game. (laughs) You bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source. Just follow the link. Every purchase supports the
0: podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreal.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. You've been reading the Australian uh, Cultural Dictionary.
1: <laughs> oh, well, you know, they kept saying larrikin, and I'm like, what is a larrikin? It's a made-up word. Well, they make up a lot of funny words in Australia. They sure do. It's a street rowdy, a hoodlum, a disorderly or rowdy.
0: A tough. Yeah. It's a, st- a tough I like that one. It's my favorite one. A tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a good one. Uh, and uh, let's see, what do you got going on? This is a, this is the end of the year. Your kids have been out of school forever, but yeah. it's the season right now. Like this is the week for us. Mm-hmm. Traffic is getting better. The sun is shining bright. You know, everybody's happier. It's like really, we've got it's it's just a major change. It stopped raining. Like all is right in the world when this this week, and then it's like the transition week, you know, because the kids are still gone, they're still in school, but they're super happy because it's the last week of school, right Next week they come home and are super miserable because they have nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst
1: Well, they got like hunger games
0: camp and stuff <laughs> yeah, to do, right? but that's the tra- that's it they, they that didn't start for another week. Oh.
2: Yeah. No, oh, we've got yes.
0: our vacation coming up, you know, and then then we come back and it's all the Hunger Games camps. Right, right. Secret right. Forest Ninja Camp. That's one. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah.
1: You said it.
0: Oh man. Man. I wanna <laughs> do kids work yep. for
1: little kids. I know. Where's my summer camp?
0: Right? You need a <laughs> summer camp. I'm I do you that right now. I sure
1: do. You know, I got to admit, I
0: feel like a boob. <laughs> <laughs> why do you, why do you I feel, feel like, like a, a boob. boob? Why?
1: Because, I, you know, I listened to last week's show, and I'm like, I, I was talking about uh, The Keep, Michael Mann's film. Yeah. And I kept referring to it as his first film and how he went to do Thief afterward. And I was just like, what am I talking about? Thief was his first film. That's probably the only reason he got to do a film after The Keep, because The Keep was so bad. I just didn't know what I was talking about last week. No.
0: You are a boob.
1: I am. Wow. I, you know <laughs> what?
0: I totally let that go. Why? I'll tell you why. Uh, because, A, uh, I didn't know, and I didn't check. And, B, because we did the, uh, the other show.
1: Oh, Yes. You, right. you
0: even forgot that show, but see that show has already become the last show that we did for me.
1: Wow, we've done a lot of shows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can I let me just? Uh, this is this is a fun metric. Sometimes I use. Um, stand by, please. Uh, when I want to just think about, you know, am I being productive? Like, should I browse the internet um, and not do something productive? And then I go to our to our uh, and I look at the aggregate of all of the audio that we have published on this show since we started. Would you like to take a guess at how many hours we have published?
1: Oh, my goodness. It's got to be pushing 200.
0: It is exactly pushing 200. Wow. That was quite a guess. (laughs) That's uncanny. (laughs) 192 hours, 2 minutes, and 9 seconds.
1: Wow. That's a lot of show.
0: Ah, uh, it's a lot of this, this right here, <laughs> 192 hours. That's oh. awful.
1: That makes me sad when it's, you say it like that. <laughs> but in a <laughs> good so way, 192 like... hours of this <laughs> makes me
0: sad. <laughs> <laughs> All the what more am reason doing
2: with my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All the more reason for us to tell the people where we're from, shall we?
1: Where are we from?
0: The next reel, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the show where we spoil movies heavily. I'm Pete Wright, that there's Andy Nelson. Hey, and you should learn all about the show at thenextreel.com. You should join us on the social channels at Facebook and Twitter, Google. Plus. We're all out there. Uh, head to the blog, read the blog stylings of the once and future king, goodly, kindly, Steve Sarmento, uh, and make sure you catch up on all of our past shows, all 100. And ninety-two hours—it's—it's <laughs> it's all out there, just there. Uh, for you. Y- you should go listen to last week's episode, uh, or not last week's episode, but the, this month's episode of the Film Board we just did last week. I'm, I feel like I'm a, a booster for Edge of Tomorrow at this point. People need hey, to go see, see this it, movie.
1: Absolutely.
0: I'm bummed that it is that it just fallen off from last week.
1: Yeah, and it's you know it's one of those things where I, I have a hard time gauging whether it's it's word of mouth or it, like did the word of mouth start ahead of time, kind of like John Carter, and it just kind of spiraled and made people not want to see it.
0: I don't know. Well, I don't. I don't either. Here's the thing. Um... So I, you know, on, the, on Facebook, I got, uh, got a couple of comments, um, you know, from folks who commented on my post on on this, and they said, you know, uh, one of the things, that, uh, one of the problems with it is that Tom Cruise is declining in his ability to be a box office draw. This is from Everett on Facebook. Uh, is not as much of a box office draw anymore. I think it's partly because his roles are becoming so similar, and his personal beliefs have affected the public's opinion of him. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I I couldn't quite uh you know uh, dismiss that because i mean there's there's got to be something to it but i i also think he's recovering right from the oprah moment and and he seems to be at least in his publicity he seems to be mostly quiet these days. And, and it sort of feels like, you know, boycotting Ender's game for disdain of Orson Scott card, right? We've talked about that. And, uh, Everett's response to that was, you know, in the case of Cruz watching movies supports a publicly active figure, such can't be said for Orson Scott card. Um, and, uh, it, you know, that is, that is also true.
1: It's, it, but it is one of those things. I mean, it has been, you know, 10, years since his couch jumping yeah, and his kind of, his kind of crazy moment. And I think that he's done a pretty good job of, of uh, kind of getting himself past that. And that's one of those reasons that I actually wanted to go back and do my little Tom Cruise marathon. Cause I mean, I was kind of sick of him too, but I was like, you know, I, I want to reevaluate his career and look at what he's done as an actor, because I mean, he is somebody who does really, invest himself in his characters when he performs and he's been in so many good movies and when you watch everything that he's done i mean there are some duds in there but on the whole i mean he's an actor who's made a lot of really good films and i think just to dismiss him uh whether it's just because of his you know scientology beliefs or uh you know his you know whatever i i, I don't even know what else really there is but it's just i don't know i just find it it's silly it's not like uh, Roman Polanski, you know, it, there's there's a big difference between Tom Cruise, who just is, spouts his his crazy Scientologist beliefs, and Roman Polanski, who uh, raped a 13 year old girl.
0: Yes, those are two different things. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm I, on the record. Yes, <laughs> I like to take a stand whenever I can. <laughs> there you go. So
1: I don't know. I, I think that it it is a something that people just they have a hard time with the fact that he is such a movie star and when you have somebody who is such a movie star um it, they there tends to be some backlash yeah and i think that's what it is i think that's a big part of it
0: yeah i think so too and i think that's that's a shame and people should probably get over that and yeah and uh, go see this movie anyway because it's a great movie and emily blunt is fantastic Absolutely. How'd we do this week? Hashtag <laughs> guess the movie, hashtag ponies prize, hashtag Steve Smart versus the People. Uh you
1: know, it was uh it was a short lived race.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: uh you know, it was one of the ones that um uh Cameron L. Ryan, she had just done an Angelica Houston uh series. Uh, just oh. watching her movies And sure enough The second image came out And she knew it was the grifters Although the best part of the whole thing Was that she couldn't actually get that out And she kept calling it the drifters And it was actually <laughs> It made for uh, a pretty funny comment So uh, that, so it was well worth it I'd say
0: That's so, awesome <laughs>
1: yeah, Congratulations <laughs> to Cameron L. Ryan For getting the grifters not At least it was based drif- on
0: Angelica Houston And yeah, not right. architecture
1: <laughs> yeah i know
0: Oh man. <laughs> that's fantastic and now let's do trailers hey uh i want to go first oh all right yeah no it's uh, i do be- and i'll tell you why because i th- i think it's been it's has it been 20 years it has been for this years. it's 20 yeah. years since the uh since the the real uh true prequel of this film uh hit and it involved some of the uh, you know some extremely raw hysterically funny moments for me in the in the movie theater uh i'm talking of course about jim carrey jeff daniel's dumb and dumber and bobby and peter farrelly are back with dumb and dumber 2 T O of course, <laughs> uh, not to be confused with what was it, Dumb and Dumberer?
1: Yeah, the uh, the, pre- the, the actual prequel. The
0: actual prequel, right? Um, which uh, I, I didn't find as funny, but this one, uh, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels both are back, uh, and I I don't know, I, I it looks like a lot of the very same humor, and then they <laughs> <laughs> the opening sequence, as it turns out. You know, Jim Carrey has been in some sort of a paralytic state, some sort of a shock state, locked in syndrome for 20 years. Uh, And uh, Jeff Daniels has been coming to see him for 20 years. Turns out it was all a gag, it was a a 20 year long gag that was awesome. And then they do the catheter thing. So the 20-year gag was, you know, it was worth a moderate chuckle. And then I I fell down onto the floor in a fetal position because, oh, my God, when he does the two-handed pull, it's so wrong. I don't think physically that's what would happen, but wow, does it look painful. It really does. Oh my god. The movie is just the trailer itself is just full of that kind of humor and I have a feeling it's going to take me back to a, to a, a very special place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they show him the name of the cat. I right, please. Uh,
1: I very much enjoyed the first one. It's one of those just it came out at the right time, you know. Yes. I I don't know like if if you if you watched it if you rented it now and watched it for the first time, I don't know if it'd work as well, but it hit me at the right time in my life that, that the humor and everything about it just really worked, and I uh, I love it and still love it, and I absolutely cannot wait for the sequel. Uh, just the fact that they got both of these guys to come back and I play can't their believe roles again, that. And, oh, it just it just looks so much fun.
0: It really, I, you know, I worry a little bit uh, that it it looks, you know, because there's, you know, it, it looks very similar. There's some yeah. of the gags look look pretty darn similar. Maybe that's what they're going to capitalize on. Maybe that's what's going to be so funny. Um, but it it does <laughs> it does look good. What I love about the IMDb page is that um, I, I don't know I, Angela Carich. Uh
2: uh-huh.
0: Do you know this I don't actress? Know. I, don't, I don't know how you say that. Yeah. Uh, she's she's been very busy this year. In very small roles, it looks like. And she is she is, gets second billing in the stars line <laughs> on That's IMDb. Strange. But she's credited as waitress, just below Jim Carrey. Uh, so I don't know who she is. Be on the lookout for Angela Carriage. Uh, sure. Otherwise, Jim Carrey, Kathleen Turner, uh, Lori Holden, Jeff Daniels, Paul Blackthorne, Rob Riggle... Who may be one of the most naturally funny people not in feature roles yet? <laughs> Rob true. Riggle is hysterical.
1: Yeah, I, every time I see him, I'm always like, the, the only, I I always go to in the face, yeah,
2: in the face,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? That and then his uh, his uh, eyebrows <laughs> crawling around on his face. <laughs> that's pretty much where i go to for him
0: yeah he's he's really uh he's just a really funny guy i mean you know from his time at the daily show and then of course uh the jump streets yes uh, so uh anyway it looks good opens 14th of november 2014 which means it will be on my list for uh my birthday day movies mm,
1: there you go mm-hmm. that'll be a fun one.
0: Oh yeah it'll be good mm-hmm. so that's what i got what do you got
1: Mine is Kingsman, the Secret Service, which, uh, I mean, I don't know if the title works that well for me. (laughs) It's it's kind of when you stumble over a little bit, but uh, instantly I was drawn to it because of uh, the team of people behind it. Uh, Matthew Vaughn is directing it. Uh, Matthew Vaughn, who most recently did X-Men First Class and then also did uh, Stardust and Kick-Ass. He's a... a, a, and um, Layer Cake, actually. He's a a director who I think can make some pretty interesting stuff. Even though I don't always like the, the film as much, I really like what he's doing with the film. And this looks like a really interesting film with a lot of really great British actors, like Colin Firth, Mark Strong, Michael Caine. And it's about this kid who, uh, you know, is this kind of young criminal and they take him in. Colin Firth brings him in. It's kind of like, M recruiting James Bond, you know, he is recruiting this kid to be this new spy, this new kind of the Knights of the Round Table sort of thing. It's these kind of this secret service. And, um, so he comes in to kind of, you know, help them out. And then on top of that, it has Samuel L. Jackson and Mark Hamill in it.
0: So what I, is, yes. What is up I, with that? This is Mark Hamill's big comeback.
1: Yeah, I have no idea what to say about it. And I don't even know what the story is about because really the trailer is all just about him training. That's really kind of what you get out of the trailer is the the lengths that this kid has to go to in training and learning what this world is like of being one of the Kingsmen. And, uh, you know, I think it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun and it's going to be funny. And uh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: I agree with you. I think it's going to be a good time. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, it feels, you know, I feel like we've seen this movie before.
1: It absolutely does.
0: Uh, And the last time I saw this movie, I also enjoyed it. I don't remember (laughs) what it was called, but I'm sure I had a good time.
1: That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, it may fall into one of those, and we may not really remember it afterward, but it does look (laughs) like it will be a good time.
0: That's what I'm counting on. That is exactly what I'm counting on.
1: This one opens uh just about a month before yours does. October 24th,
0: 2014.
1: Outstanding. Uh-huh.
0: All right, Andy. Do you fancy a race?
2: A story you'll never forget. Gallipoli.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, many people might be surprised that this is not a musical. Gallipoli.
1: It doesn't sound Gallipola. like a, it should be a
0: musical. <laughs> Uh, you
1: can make a musical out of it. It is it's, it's the, a it very is. lyrical name.
0: <laughs> it is, it is. But there's there's uh, very little musical about this, uh, apart from the music, which is fantastic. Uh, this is uh, okay, Peter Weir directs. Peter Weir writes based on the uh, screenplay uh, by uh, David Williamson um, and Ernest Raymond, who wrote the novel Tell England. I have not read Tell England.
1: Uh, nor have I.
0: No. Uh, but it is the story of uh, two young Australian lads as they uh, do their best to run away from their parents and enlist in the war to go fight the Turks.
1: Mm-hmm. World War I. It
0: is nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> Uh, so I, I can't remember the last time I'd seen Gallipoli. Um, and so it was a real treat, uh, jumping back into it, particularly to see the young, oh, the young Mel Gibson.
1: Yeah, this is, this is Mel Gibson around the, uh, the Mad Max days. This was very early on in
0: his career. Although not dubbed. (laughs) No, no, not dubbed. Not dubbed. Uh, He had only done, uh, let's see, he plays Frank Dunn in this film and he had done uh well he'd done mad max in 79 uh and summer city in 77 the rest that he'd done was uh, looks like just tv uh before gallipoli and and besides mad max which obviously had its own sort of promotional issues for him uh this was this was the big movie for him
1: yeah i mean Mad Max didn't even get released in the u s until i think eighty one right so uh, nobody over here had certainly heard of him and Gallipoli was a great film to uh, to capture more international attention and get him um, a little more a little more fame and uh, exposure
0: so how did it hold up for you this film
1: it, you know it's an interesting film it's It's a film that i do like i don't know if it's a film that i i love but um and i think that ends up being true with a lot of peter weir's films but this one is a really interesting story and i i'm always drawn to the way he tells a story of war and of a specific battle um at or on gallipoli um I I really enjoy the way he tells that story in context of kind of a friendship between two um, men who are eager. Well, one of them's eager and ambitious and ready to kind of fall into all the marketing campaigns that he's heard about war and how great it is to go and fight and all this stuff. And the the other one's a little more uh, reticent and, and doesn't quite buy into it. But he wants to go on and, and, you know, he's always looking for something to do. And so he goes and joins his buddy. I, I like their relationship. And I like this journey that they take to actually... Uh, and it's quite a long journey. I mean, it does take them a good at least half of the film to actually get to a point where they're actually enlisting and, and actually going off to fight. And, uh, you know, I I enjoy the way that he did that because what it does for this particular uh, situation of Gallipoli is it creates this uh, story of character and we get to learn about these characters and get to know who they are only to realize the devastation that this war actually brings to uh, them. And, Uh, and then on the bigger picture to really uh, all of these young soldiers who were fighting it.
0: I I found myself surprised at just how much um, I I did like this film. And again, I I don't mean to sort of harken back to the movie that I've seen quote, but don't remember, but this movie, it it deals with very similar themes of, uh, you know, um, young men, their relationship, their Uh, sort of uh, betrayal of their family commitments in order to go, um, you know, do their patriotic duty. Um, And uh, yet I found myself, I think where this movie stands out for me um, is these two characters. I just find their friendship, um, I find an affinity to their friendship. And I think these, these boys... And maybe it's their, you know, it's the, the chariots of fire bit, you know, or their their run, their great run early in the film. Um that that I I like so much. But I think the way they set up their friendship is um it is it's it's really solid. Um uh, now it gets more complicated when you get Mel Gibson's uh opportunity to um you know to betray one ba- one batch of friends for another you know and and move back and forth between the the infantry and the light horsemen and and I you know I really like the way he plays that it is a very human piece of the film and yet there are pieces there there are parts of the film that I find I I can't quite put my finger on why I I don't have that same affinity for it you know I uh, I feel like it's not a long film. It's not over two hours. You know, it's just, it's, what is it, about an hour 52, something like that. Right. Uh, and I still find there are pieces of it that, wow, they just plod along. And I, and I I don't know, is that the nature of Australian films?
2: Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that any time you're
0: going to show The Outback, <laughs> it's going to be a long movie?
1: <laughs> well, that's certainly the case in... Uh... In Baz Luhrmann's Australia, Ooh. yeah, right.
0: And I, I have to admit, I am not a connoisseur of Australian films. Like, I have not seen very many of them, um, and uh, and and so it's, you know, I, I know I'm speaking in rash generalizations, but
1: uh, yeah. And I, I, I don't know if I would, you know, I think that is a little too gen- general as far as just saying it's it's something having to do with Australian films. For me, it seems, it's it's you know. Just something of the period, and it's certainly something of this particular filmmaker.
0: Crocodile um, Dundee, Interminable.
1: Well, I, I honestly haven't seen that probably since the 80s, and i that's one that I, I really don't want to go back and revisit. I don't want to have a, a, you know... I think I looked up at our, our lexicon. Uh, we called it a double whammy when you when you watch something that you loved as a child only to find out that it's terrible and that it becomes a double whammy. So I, I don't want to revisit Crocodile Dundee because I don't want it to turn out to be a double whammy. That's smart. I, I do want to keep remembering it to be an enjoyable film. But okay, it,
0: g- keep going about
1: the yeah.
2: Why
0: does this movie seem so long?
1: Uh, no, I, I, I think it uh, it's just the the story. I mean, we're watching a character film. Yeah. This is not a big... Um, action-oriented film about war in World War II and Australia's place in it. This is a character film between two uh, young men who are just trying to figure out what they're doing in this whole thing. And so it becomes it becomes a slower film, I think, because we just spend more time watching the characters, and it's the character development. It's the nature of that type of film. Um, and when when you have that sort of film and you're not focused so much on... The story moving us from A to B to C, I think it can feel like it's plotting along a little bit more. Um, and, you know, it depends on how much you invest in the characters. But for me, this really is a character film. This is not a, I mean, I walk out of this film not learning anything about the war in Gallipoli. Uh, like, no, <laughs> and that's other that, than huge. Other, yeah, other than um, how awful it was and how devastating it was. Now, if I were an Australian, in thousand nine hundred and eighty one watching this, I probably would have learned about it in school and have a much better sense as to what the whole thing was all about but um, but i you know I think as an American going into this, it becomes a character film, and the war is something that happens in it and it 's really a film that 's not so much about the war itself it 's more about just uh, how awful war can be. And how devastating it can be.
2: Well,
0: it, that's true. And I, I you know, I want to go back just a, a bit because, you know, I think you're right. Uh, you know, it's a character film and, you know, you got to invest in the characters. But what I'm saying is, like, it's the characters that I like and it still feels long in yeah. sections. You know what I'm saying? Like, I am invested in the characters. That's why I show up. Uh, and, and yet it still feels like there are sequences in that first half. And maybe it's because I know it's a war movie and I'm anxious to get to, you um, get them enlisted you know yeah. I'm, I'm anxious on their behalf uh but to your point once they once they become enlisted that's where the real meat of the uh, of the film takes off and uh you know i'm i am absolutely uh riveted not in in fact by these two guys at this point but by their uh their the infantry uh commander Mm-hmm. Who is forced to make these decisions, to make these yeah. calls in the, you know, at the climax of the film to rush for wave, to have to order wave after wave after wave of Australian infantry who are lining up. And, to you know, the way they put the camera on these guys fists as they are grabbing the top of the sandbags to hoist themselves up as soon as the commander yells, uh, you know, tells them to charge. Knowing that the very next thing that they experience will most likely be getting riddled with bullets. Yeah. I, I, I that was just an earth shattering climax for me.
1: Yeah. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. And I think Bill Hunter, uh, who's just such a great Australian actor, um, he plays that role so well. And it is heartbreaking, uh, but in a way that, makes sense when he has to make that decision at the end or he's just like, well, I, I'm not going to do it unless I'll do it myself. And he goes out there with them, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I found that really, because this is like you say, this is what, it, you know, I, I think what Gallipoli really excels at, uh, w- apart from the action of the war, but it's putting on display the humanity of the war, right? Yeah. Um, and and i think that the reason part of the reason they get away with that or they they sort of shine in that area is because it's not a history film do you know what i'm saying yeah like as you say you don't learn anything about the australians role uh, in the war against the turks and in, in this part of world war 1 but what you do see is the uh the incredible depth of commitment of the Australian Army to this cause, whatever this cause is, it doesn't matter. Right. But they're willing at any cost to, uh, you know, to do whatever job needs to be done. And I think that really shines in this film. It, it, it uh, uh, I think it is uh, a beautiful piece.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's you know, I mean, Australia had only been, I think, an official country since 1901. So. It was, uh,
0: yeah, it had been like, what, 15 years, 10 years? Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, exactly. It hadn't been around that long. So this, when the World War um, happened, this was kind of their chance to show that they could stand up with the rest of them. And the fact that they could
0: even muster an army.
1: Right, exactly. And and all of these people were so proud. I mean, the guy comes to, uh, to the track race uh, marching about the, um, the the joining the troops and it, he says this is the this is the next great game or whatever it is, and it, it, they make it they pitch it like it's just this big game, and they want to go uh, bring all these people over there to to you know support. And everybody is just so enthusiastic about signing up; they want to go support their country that is just an, an infant country. And um, and I, I should say, New Zealand was involved as well. Uh, the whole troop the, together is called ANZAC, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. And um, that's why, because of this whole thing, um, they have ANZAC Day on April 25th as the, um, uh, the commemoration of all the, the casualties of, of between those two countries. Um, and, and because it was such a huge failure. And I think World War I was really a war of a lot of military failure. And you watch just the way that things break down and, and these poor decisions that get made about... Uh, you know, just the, the the lack of communication and how this guy tells them um, just keep sending them up, keep sending them up. We have to we have to keep the beaches safe for the British. And then they find out that the British have landed and they're sitting on the beaches having tea, you know. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, just it's, it's horrifying. Awful. And you have these troops just charging wave after wave into machine gun fire. Uh, from these Turks, just getting mowed down, and it just I mean it just breaks your heart, and you are right there with uh, mel gibson 's character Frank as he uh, as he comes as he 's racing uh, that last race of his to to get um, the um, the message from the commander back to, uh, to Bill Hunter's character only to have it be too late. The whistle goes off and he knows that it's, that everyone's gone. And it just, it's just, a, it really is a heartbreaking end of a film.
0: It is heartbreaking. And, and, you know, such a wonderful journey. Uh, it's heartbreaking and wonderful. Uh, you know, Mel Gibson's character, um, it, what we see in Mel Gibson or in, in, you know, Frank through through the his whole journey is uh, this guy who doesn't want to be in the war. He's going to the war because everybody else is really, yeah, uh, pretty much. He's nervous about the fight, uh, but he likes having a feather on his hat, so he's going to do the light horse thing and because his buddy's there and and but but that last assignment when he's given the role of the runner to watch him. Run. I mean, the whole purpose of his run is to get a message uh, to uh, over the colonel's head, right? To the general, he's going to mm-hmm. the general uh, to to say that there is some confusion in the message that you have gotten, and you need to at least reconsider the order you're about to give to kill all these, you know, these soldiers as you order them into battle. And the the colonel is not letting us do that, but general, you need to you need to let us do that. And and the general says, okay. Go tell him I re- I may be reconsidering, right? Yeah. And he starts running, and you see in that race, I mean, that race, more important than any race he's ever won, or he's ever run, is the race in, in which he grows up. Yeah. Right? That That's his transformation. and And not only in him as a character, but in Mel Gibson as an actor, when we see the birth of Crazy Mel and when he hears the the charge order and he does his face thing where he, his eyes roll back and he screams it was just like you know i mean this took me to lethal weapon and to all the lethal weapon movie it's that <laughs> mel gibson crazy face and there it was on young mel oh uh-huh. no i you know i but but seriously that you know thematically that was the that was sort of the pinnacle for me is is watching him and it it's interesting because you think the story is about uh um his friend right you think the story is about archie right and it's really not about archie right uh ultimately you know it it's about these guys but the the guy who actually goes through the transformation the guy we're actually watching develop as a as a person is this guy who's ultimately you know he's not on screen all that much by himself uh it, 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 but it's it's the transformation of mel gibson's character i think it uh, is yeah, it so.
1: absolutely is, and I think that um, and Archie's character, um, played by Mark Lee, is a very interesting one in that he is so direct through the course of the story. He's such a straight arrow. He he knows what he wants. He wants to go fight, and he sets out to do that. And he he heads uh, does what he has has to do to get enrolled, and then he he becomes a fighter, and then he goes out and he also realizes this devastation but he uh you know like all the rest of the troops musters up his courage he says his little um, speech to himself that he would say before he goes out on races and he gets up there and runs and i think that um the power of that role and i think the power of of the friendship that we had watched develop, is that we see this this kid who's just enthusiastic and gung-ho and friendly and you know uh just this wonderfully happy go lucky sort of guy um we see his um, kind of we become a friend of his through mel 's eyes through frank 's eyes, and at that last moment when we have to watch him do his last run and um and we We witness the pain on on frank 's face when when the whistle goes off. We are right there with Frank, and we're watching and just hoping beyond hope that Archie will make it that this this one race that you know this fastest kid in Australia is going to be the one who can who can make it and uh, I think it was very smart of peter weir and and of his writer uh, David Williamson to kind of create this character and create him as a runner, so that when he got t- to that moment. Um, you know, we, we have the character that we're following, Archie, but we also have Frank, this character that we're really living through. And through that, I think it just makes that devastation even stronger in the film.
0: Absolutely agree. And, you know, that's, it's one of the things that I think is, is, is so powerful is that, you know, we need Archie's straight man in order to appreciate uh, Frank's journey. And yeah. Frank's transformation and I think it, it you know it, it one of the things so interesting is it's not very gradual to me Frank's transformation is not gradual it is uh instantaneous right if, to me that transformation happens on that run and that run is like the last three minutes of the film yeah um and you know what a what a ridiculously horrible setup these guys had. I, you know on this on this cliffside. I you know I wanted to say before we got to the you know we just sort of skipped over it, but I, I think the in addition to the the final sequence as they're being ordered over the the barriers and into gunfire, um, the truly horrific uh, is the sequence when they go skinny dipping uh, at the base of the cliffs yeah uh And they're all having a great time. They dive down to the bottom. they find some old guns, and then pieces of boat and people start to fall from the surface uh and it, It's just one of those sort of staggeringly grotesque images of of debris raining so slowly from the surface of the water it It is really beautifully portrayed. Uh, but but awful, yeah.
1: It really is, and it's, and and yeah, just like that, the shrapnel and the guy who gets hit in the head with it. And it is pretty. It is pretty painful. And you know, I think that's the film balances that well. Oh, uh, well, particularly once we get to the war. I, I think we we get a good balance of that of the insanity of war, the mm-hmm. way that the way that people treat things like that because even when they come out of the water, they're kind of laughing about it. The fact that one kid, the one guy got hit in the head, they're laughing about the fact that the sharks in the water and betting on who will get attacked first and all that stuff. And, and then the, um, uh, the other scene that always strikes me is when they're just walking through the trenches and there's that dead body kind of like stuck in the side Mm -hmm. and everybody, as they go by, they kind of shake the hand of that dead body is because his hand is kind of jutting out. And it's, you know, it's that morbid, humor that people kind of have in times of war, because that's kind of the only way they can get through
0: it. Yeah, that's not good. No. That's just, just not good. It's really gruesome. So you, you, know, you said you have kind of a love-hate relationship with Peter Rear. What is it about this film? Uh, you know, Do you see those characteristics both at play in this film?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a love-hate. It's, it's just that I, I have a harder time getting into his films. I really appreciate them. Um, and uh, but sometimes, especially some of his earlier films, I, I have a harder time really just kind of getting into them. Like I really enjoy um, Picnic and Hanging Rock. I find that an absolutely fascinating film to watch, but it's a film that kind of just keeps me at a distance the whole time. Same thing with The Last Wave. That's a film that it, it you know just kind of always I have a hard time getting into. Um, this I I do feel that to a certain extent, but what keep what actually welcomes me into this film more than some some of those earlier ones is this friendship between these two guys. I do have an easier time getting into that, and then I you know I mean the Year of Living Dangerously um, Witness I honestly don't remember the Year of Living Dangerously that much. Um, Witness I do remember quite a bit, and I remember enjoying it. Um, I actually, that one, I think he does quite well. I think from that point forward, I, I really get into his films quite a bit. So it might've just been something in his earlier films that, uh, I just had a harder time with, but witness the mosquito coast, dead poet society, green card, fearless, the Truman show, master and commander. Um, and I never saw the way back, but, um, he does a lot of really interesting films and, um, uh, there's something about how he directs that is never, um uh it's it's not he really avoids maudlin it seems he really kind of his the emotional levels or the connections between characters seem to be very grounded and if you're not immediately connected to those characters, it can be harder too uh to really feel that emotion
0: yeah i I agree with you it's a funny observation i i agree you know, almost lockstep with you in terms of his, you know, his, um, his films and his unique ability to keep the viewer at arm's length, likely unintentionally. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you. And then you get films like, uh, you know, for me, the Mosquito Coast and Dead Poets Society and, and, uh, the Truman Show, I think in particular, uh, boy, the Truman Show stands out as one of those that, that I think actually welcomes me, um, you know, in in a way that few films do, um, but I found that viewing experience tr- really unique in the Truman Show. It's it yeah. it, it is a a fascinating film, um, and and so you know I'm with you. It's you're right. It's not love hate. That's like not a that's not a fair way to characterize that relationship. And yet, uh, it is inconsistent. I find his films like it. it inconsistent over the course of of his career about the films that that I, you know, uh, that I can really find approachable and beckoning.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a a fair way to say. Uh, I mean, I'd be interested to go back and watch some more of his films. It's been a while since I've seen um, a lot of them. And, uh, but I mean, you know, then there are films like Fearless and Fearless for me is kind of like your Truman Show. That film really struck a chord with me and uh, it moved me in a way that, uh, at that time in my life, very few films were, and so I'm I'm very curious to go revisit that. Um, I I think that he can plumb those uh, those emotions, but it just seems like, uh, in some ways, I feel like a lot of it comes from the actor more than from his directing.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that, and and so back again to Gallipoli. I mean, I wonder. How much of my appreciation for this film is built on my affinity for Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. and and I know he's there's a lot of Mel Gibsonish stuff that's kind of gone off the deep end, uh, and I you know not speaking at any of that, but I you know I grew up with Mel Gibson. Yeah, You know, Mel Gibson was a staple in my house, in my film library, uh, in my youth. I mean, he was, he was the guy. Right. And, uh, uh, so I, I wonder if, you know, going back to, to revisit him as a young man is one of the things that I, I find really welcoming, uh, allows me to welcome this film, um, you know, like, you know, similar to the Truman Show, um, You know, if it it wasn't for Mel, would I still like this so much?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say. uh, Because Mark Lee, there is something about Mark Lee that I find watchable. Um, But, and I mean, I think he does a a solid job in the performance of Archie. Um, um, But I think it might just be the, the kind of the, that, like we were saying earlier, that very straight arrow character that he plays that makes it a little harder to be drawn to him quite as much? Um, You know, I don't quite know. Um, But Mel Gibson, there's something about the fact that he comes into this whole situation already skeptical. And it's only through friendship that he's like, well, I have nothing better to do, sure, that he kind of goes along with it. And then he has to you know, witness the horrors. Um, I think there's something about that that draws uh, me to him more. But that being said, I mean, there's something about Mark Lee, uh, Archie's Ambition that he plays, I mean, right at the beginning, that foot race that he does, bare feet across the rocks and the sand and just everything, and how bloodied and and blistered and ruined his feet are at the end of that it's uh, it 's uh, amazing that 's like an amazing character moment for me, and i that 's the scene of all the all of them for me that stick out of this film for him, uh, aside from the ending. Uh, I always go back to that scene as to this is a a, a guy who is dedicated and is going to for fight for what he believes in he's stubborn and he's going to make it happen
0: yeah i i agree with you and that's uh, you know I, <laughs> I i don't know mark lee is is one of those um actors just sort of diligent um you know he's he really nails that that role of just that sort of dogged determination yeah um and uh, you know and you're right uh you know he's he's a fascinating character he sets the tone in that you know i'm a I'm going to, I'm, I'm a tight steel spring. I'm going to run as fast as the leopard, you know, that, that mantra that he chants kind of before he runs uh, is, you know, it's, it's a great way to uh, open the film. And yet it also, I mean, there is so little movement from him as a character um, uh, that, you know, by the end I'm, you know, I, I I'm much more obviously interested in the action, but but much less in his character, independent of the rest of the sort of mechanics of the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk just a little bit about the portrayal of Australia, okay. uh, and you are the, you know, you you're the Australian guy,
1: <laughs> the resident Australian. Yeah, on as, the show <laughs>
0: as the resident Australian. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, they shot this in Australia and no. in Egypt.
0: <laughs> yes, and they
1: all, did. Uh, yes, they did, as they make very clear. Yes. <laughs> Look, it's Egypt. <laughs> we'll <show>
0: pyramids. <laughs> Let's go to the pyramids. <laughs> Let's touch them to prove it. Uh, you know,
1: actually, they, they didn't have permission to go on the big pyramid. They only had permission to go on the little pyramid. This is one of those stories that, you know, uh, it just strikes me as, inevitably this is going to happen on film shoots all the time because you always have these battles between directors and producers the producer does all they can to get everything arranged so you can do one thing that they'll let you do in this case you know the producer of the movie um i'm forgetting which producer it was it's uh uh, patricia uh, Lovell. she got permission from the egyptian government for them to use the little pyramid. They could climb on the little pyramid and do their filming on the little pyramid. So she's at her office and she, she comes to set and she sees, no, they're not on the little pyramid. They're on the big pyramid (laughs) and they don't have permission to use. And, you know, she and Peter, we're getting a big, big fighting match. And it's the thing where directors are always, you know, pushing to get what they want, and they, you know, producers not around, oh, let's just use the big pyramid. They'll, you know, they, they shake a <laughs> couple hands and, and smile nicely at the people, and, you know, it, it, it's that, you know, I don't know, I, I've been in those shoes many times. I
0: would. Say, I, I hear just a dash of bitterness. <laughs>
1: uh, as if I've, yeah, as if uh, I have I've had to go through those fights this before. This is very it,
0: real right now. You're really, this is. is very real. <laughs> Does it feel like Does yeah. it feel it? Super alive, I think yes. is what we call it.
1: But um, yeah, it's it is the sort of thing that uh, does happen on, on film sets, and you know, it there's there's the viewpoint of um, um, better to uh, uh, what is it uh, beg, beg forgiveness, for forgiveness than ask permission. That's permission, right? Exactly. That I think a lot of directors use and and get away with. I mean, it really can bite them uh, in the butt. But in some cases, it does work. And in this case, it did work. And I got to say, those shots from the top of the pyramid are gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, they are. Uh, they uh, really yes, they are. are.
1: Yes, indeed. Mm. Uh, but yeah, back to Australia. Uh, you know, this is a, you know, you got kind of the country boy and then you've got the larrikin, the kind of the, the troublemaker who just kind of uh, roams around and and works, and I, you know I think they set up Australia nicely without having to spend time uh, giving us all the details about it. And I mean, it, it I think you get a nice portrayal of Australia and of the troops and and everything going on. And I think um, yeah, I mean, actually, even Gallipoli, all the stuff in in uh, that happens in Turkey was actually shot on the uh, the Australian coast. And I think they make it look great. And you know this this film, I think works really well and, and and proved to be a huge success for not just for, as a film where, you know, I mean, it won eight awards at the Australian uh, uh, Academy Awards, uh, Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor. Um, let's see, Best Actor was Mel Gibson. Best Supporting Actor was, I believe, Bill Kerr, who played Uncle Jack. Um, best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. And um, it then it got... A lot of praise internationally so this film uh, because of the story and because it you know just a a great depiction of this this friendship in time of war um, it really hit internationally and and was critically praised and and just really made a good um, a good mark for itself but more importantly it ended up um, kind of helping boost the Australian new wave which was kind of a, a, a new resurgence of films from Australia that started in the in the 70s. And uh, it, it was like about 10 years of this Australian new wave. Um, some people call it osploitation. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's,
0: just, you know, it's just kind of... Those people shouldn't. They shouldn't.
1: Yeah, but, but you know, the Mad Max films came right. out of this. Um, uh, there were a lot of great films that came out of this. I mean, Walkabout... Came out. Uh, we talked about that uh, last week with um, with Jenny Agutter in uh, American Werewolf in London, um, Picnic and Hanging Rock. You know, so a lot of these filmmakers, uh, you know, that we've been talking about, Peter Weir and uh, Bruce Beresford. We've talked about him. He did um, uh, The Breaker Morant, which came out in this period. It was a period of a lot of these great films to come out that really kind of um, helped boost Australian film in the world in the in the world uh market and it really helped um people kind of tap into that and and really start enjoying a lot of these movies i think some of the best some of the other best ones walk about mad max break Morant, gallipoli the road warrior the year of living dangerously dead calm my brilliant career uh the last wave so i mean there's a lot of these just stand-up films and then that this period of the Australian New Wave or I think they also called it like the golden age of Australian cinema um, was followed by what they call the, the glitter film period or the post-New Wave period and that was kind of in the 90s and that was Baz Luhrmann with Strictly Ballroom, that was The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert etc etc so I mean it was, it was a really great time for Australian cinema to be uh, bursting onto the world stage
0: well, it is, a, it, it is you know, and again, I, it makes me want to do uh, some more investigation of Australian sim- cinema in terms of just, you know, c- to kind of embrace some, some more of these themes. Uh, well, there's a,
1: great, there's a great documentary that came out, uh, gosh, not too many years ago, called Not Quite Hollywood, The Wild Untold Story of Ozploitation, actually. Oh, I like it. It's a, yeah, it's a documentary about this period of the 70s and 80s uh, films that were coming out of Australia.
0: Oh well, I I should probably start there.
1: That's a great documentary to watch.
0: Uh, I, okay, <laughs> then we don't have to talk about it anymore. Wow, what a relief! Uh, put that one to bed. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I what else uh, stands out to you in this film? Let's talk just uh, uh, briefly about Russell Boyd.
1: Yeah, uh, Russell Boyd, great cinematographer. Who, uh I mean there's definitely some shots in this that I think just stand out as just you know prime uh, work of a great cinematographer. He really knows how to put his scenes together and uses i mean this film vastly uh, the vast majority of it is is exterior um, there's there are some interiors, but for the most part it 's just all exteriors and he really does a great job of using available light, giving his films this just very natural feel. And I think uh, I think he's he is one of the greats. I mean, he gosh, how long has he been around? I mean, Sixty
0: nine.
1: Yeah, he's seventy years old now, so he's been around for a long time. He did, yeah. I mean, geez, he did Ghost Rider a few years. Right. Ago. Yeah, right. So this is a man who's been around for a very long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's seventy-five films uh, to his credit between shorts and TV, uh, but wow. Yeah. Uh, and and really across, you know, <laughs> he goes from tin cup to liar liar to master and commander to ghost rider, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Man knows how to put together a frame.
1: And then on top of that,
0: oh, he had, crocodile Dundee,
1: yeah, there boom! You go. <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> on top of that, he had John Seal working as his uh, assistant cameraman. On this, and John Seale, uh, at the time was, I believe, trying to kind of expand into doing his own uh, director of photography work. Um, and somebody said, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't. You should just stop doing this assisting and just jump into the the director of photography stuff." And he's just like, "Oh, come on! I have to. I have to work on this film. It's, you know, it's this film about Gallipoli, and it's it's going to be an amazing experience." And so he he willingly decided to stick stick it out again as as the assistant camera on this film um, to help Russell in his cinematography. And um, which was, you know, a great move because it uh, introduced him to Peter Weir. And then he went on to be the DP on witness mosquito coast, uh, you know, he's Dead Dead Poets. Dead Poets society, right. He ended up yeah. working with him for quite a bit. And uh, I mean, it just is expanded into an, an amazing career for him. I mean, all the way through the English patient uh, you know he worked with uh, uh, um, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley he was in the Harry Potter he did Harry Potter uh, and, uh, and the Sorcerer's Stone
0: so uh, the perfect storm I mean I, I, you know a lot yeah. of people have sort of mixed uh, reviews of that film and yet how difficult it is to do a film like that yeah uh, yeah it's <laughs> he's had a, a varied career himself
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Hmm. <laughs> All right, who else is on is higher on your list?
1: Um let me look here. The uh the the film it wasn't necessarily based on any one book, but there was a book called uh The Broken Years by Bill Gamage that uh Peter Weir used as inspiration. Uh it was about Australian soldiers in the Great War. And then also the war histories of C.E.W. Bean, um, who's a historian, and he has a number of just volumes of, of just history. And in particular, there were some stories in that that, uh, that uh, Peter Weir drew from. He found a story in there about a person who was a runner and um, and – he, it wasn't this story, but it was something that he that caught his eye because he liked the idea of of writing this story about these runners who then have to go to a battle where they essentially have to run, and um, so that kind of was the spurred him on to kind of come up with this story. So uh, those are those guys, and then I guess a, a, uh, another big name that's worth mentioning is uh, right at the top of the uh, movie is uh, Rupert
0: Murdoch. You know, I was actually going to bring that up. Um, he He's not a producer credit.
1: He was an... A uh, presenter?
0: Well, presented by?
1: No, I mean, he, was, he essentially was... I, I guess I would say he was uh, um, like a, a financier. I mean, if anything, I would call him an executive producer, even though it's not... He didn't have an executive producer credit. But my understanding is that uh, initially they got some funds from the... Um, uh, the I I don't know It's they have like the um uh, the film commission in Australia will kind of right, give financing right. to films and stuff they uh, 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 Patricia Lowell the producer she put her house up actually for collateral to get some money from the commission to start the process and what they did is they shot some stills they shot a whole bunch of stills to kind of create their the pamphlet to kind of help sell. Uh, sell their story to get the rest of their money and actually that's where they found mark lee he was actually a model and they liked peter liked his look enough to to cast him as archie but um they went to uh rupert murdoch and uh what was the other guy's name robert stigwood i believe yes and um they uh talked to them about this and and they actually were interested in, in, I guess, helping flesh out the rest of the money that these guys needed to make this movie. My understanding is that uh, Rupert Murdoch's father actually was, I, I don't know, he was in the war and he was over there. And I don't know if he, I, I, I'm not sure if he was a reporter or if he was um, just a soldier in the war, but he was actually there. And so that's the reason that Rupert Murdoch wanted to kind of participate and help get this story made.
0: Oh my, where are they now? Mm. Uh yeah, it's it was uh a little bit jarring to see his name at the front of this film. Yeah, like uh, right out of the gate, it's I, like I, know, there. Yeah. I don't know why it should be necessarily. No. Well, uh, his you know, his role in media.
1: Certainly, but yeah. I mean, you, I, I don't know if he's ever been tied into another movie.
0: I don't know. Uh, uh yeah, um uh, He's well. He's been in The Simpsons. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't believe he has. I mean, he's he's obviously been. He, he doesn't have any other credits uh, in terms of feature films. Yeah. Uh, so. So there. There you go.
1: There you go. Uh,
0: last comments. Anything I, else?
1: I, no, I think I. Ran through my list, yeah.
0: Awesome. Uh well, this is you know, this is one of those films. I am not I I feel like I'm not jumping for joy that we've seen this film again. Um yeah. but I do like it. Uh yeah. it's it's not a film that I will not put on again. I I do enjoy it. I I enjoy the the story and I love the characters of it and and uh it, you know, it's um uh, and you know, again, not to be ignored, how much fun it is to see uh, to see the young Mel Gibson invent Crazy Face. <laughs> you know, I feel like we 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 sort of skipped over the very end. This is one of those films that ends quite abruptly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've we have seen you know three waves of uh, you know the the uh, soldiers, so Australian New Zealand soldiers, jump. Uh, Jump up into gunfire, into Turkish gunfire, and the very last shot we have the athletic Archie at full tilt, uh, and he makes it a lot farther than some of his peers, uh, and then he dies, and that's the iconic shot of him getting shot, and um, uh, you know arching his back. <laughs> Archie arches his back, uh, you know, and you see him uh, kind of bend backward, and and that's it. the the movie ends on a on a freeze Mm -hmm. Um, does that work for you
1: yeah it it really makes it hit home all the more it uh, i find it just really devastating you freeze on that image of him in his moment of death and uh, interestingly enough uh, and i think this is really smart of them of the filmmakers that's essentially the same pose that he's in at the beginning of of the film when he wins that race at the beginning because the way the runners go and how they arch their chest forward to kind of push it across the finish line ahead of the others. And it's essentially the exact same pose. And I find that uh, kind of just a haunting comparison between, um, you know, him early in the film and him here where he's like, he's clearly not winning a race here. And seeing him in that same pose, that kind of victorious breaking the the ribbon on the finish line pose, uh, knowing that he's really not, it's, I mean, it really kind of,
0: yeah, you know, at the same time, as much as it's heartbreaking that he, you know, that he's killed, as far as we know, um, I I don't know that he's not winning some sort of a race for himself. I mean, the whole movie, I, you know, this is kind of on on reflection. The whole movie, he is really, you know, working toward kind of this, what we are led to believe is an inevitable conclusion. Yeah. And he achieves it.
1: Well, like you said, he does make it farther than everyone else.
0: Yeah. Anyhow.
1: Yeah. All right. So although, uh, you know, speaking to that image though, this goes back to quarantine even of showing (laughs) the final image on your movie poster. I knew you were gonna bring it up. (laughs) It's like What are they thinking? Why would you use that? I mean, I know it's a powerful image, but why would you put it in the marketing for your film, letting people know this is the last moment of the movie? You know, I just don't get it. I really don't.
0: Well, it's not like they broke it's not like the tagline was look at this picture, it's the last moment of the movie.
1: No, they don't, but, you know, they don't on quarantine either, but you know that it's something that's going to
0: happen. I Why is it more obvious for me on quarantine? And and I had that experience with quarantine. Like, I saw the poster, and I immediately said, well, that's the end, and then it was the end. Right. Uh, and I didn't have that same experience with Gallipoli. Like, I, I saw the poster, and I knew it was a war movie, and that felt like, well, it sort of gave it away yeah. that it's a war movie. Like, I didn't make that connection. Uh, it just was yeah. a representation of the death and the horror of war. Yeah. For me.
1: I guess. I guess. I'm not, you know, and
0: I'm not actually, this is not me. uh, I I do not want to argue this with you. (laughs) I, I, I I, honestly, I'm, I'm curious uh, as to why that has, that doesn't have the same effect on me because I was bothered. I was indeed bothered by it.
1: Yeah. Uh, It is weird. I don't know why it wouldn't have that effect on you.
0: Yeah. No, I'm, something's very strange. Yeah. How'd it do in the box office?
1: It did, you know, like I said, this it really kind of helped to uh, break Australia into the international scene, and it uh, did pretty well for itself. It was kind of tricky doing the numbers on this one because uh, a lot of the numbers I found were actually in Australian dollars. So I had to actually do these, you know, look for historic uh, exchange rates between <laughs> U.S. and Australian <laughs> dollars in 1981 – how do you exchange that and then are how do you so committed? Oh man. <laughs> that's, yeah. You it's, are such a it's, producer. It's, it's the ultimate dork, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> oh man. So yes, this movie uh from what I could find, it cost three million dollars to make, which actually is pretty small. Um and that's about 7.6 million adjusted. My sense of that is that it actually um cost less to make films in Australia at that time. A lot of these new wave films they were all ultra low budget films i mean Mad Max you know that series was just a really tiny budgets so I think that 's why it 's a three million dollar budget that 's my. my hunch at any rate um, It went on uh in internationally. And the international figure I could find is actually Australia. So I couldn't find anything else internationally. (laughs) But in Australia, it made about $13.2 million, which is about almost $34 million. Here in the US, it made uh, about $5.7 million, which is about $14.6 million adjusted. So total adjusted, it made about... Uh, forty-eight point five million dollars. So it definitely, uh, you know, made money. It it did help break Australia out into the international scene. So this was a a a big success for Australia.
0: That's that's great. Yeah. That feels right. Yeah. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see uh, all the movies that we've done on this uh, on this show. One hundred and ninety-two hours worth of rankings. Uh, or you could listen to our epic re-ranking episode, which you can find on the uh, in our SoundCloud feed. I'm not even gonna like be real specific about it because it's horribly boring, uh, but you can hear what that's all about if you head over to our SoundCloud feed.
1: If you need something
0: to put you to sleep at night, yeah, right? If you can find it and you need a sedative, that'll do it. All right, where do we start?
1: You know, I gotta say, I love these taglines on posters. Sometimes they just they do not sell the movie well I don't know, Gallipoli From a place you never heard of A story you'll never forget uh,
0: Well, I mean, true <laughs> Alright, all right,
1: Gallipoli or Carrie
0: I think Carrie
1: uh, Yeah, I will go Carrie This is one of those hard things I think Gallipoli is a, a strong film But it's not a film that I would return to too often Yeah Alright, Gallipoli or the Sandlot.
0: Um, probably Gallipoli.
1: Well, I certainly would watch The Sandlot more, but like I just said, Gallipoli is the stronger film, so I agree. Gallipoli or Field of Dreams. I'm totally Field of Dreams on this one.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I am going to willingly and uncurmudgeoningly give you Field of Dreams on this one.
1: All right. Gallipoli or Run Lola Run?
0: Run Lola Run.
1: Yeah, I think uh I think so. Gallipoli or The Illusionist? I think I would go Gallipoli.
0: I think on so this too, one. yeah. 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 Okay,
1: Gallipoli or Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? Gallipoli. Nick and Nora, I uh, see I'm torn on this one cuz Nick and Nora is something I'd watch more often. There's something really cute about those two characters. Um, but Gallipoli is definitely a film with a little more meat.
0: I don't know. I feel like we've ranked in the past, and you have tri- you have yeah. convincingly sold me that I should demote Nick and Nora, <laughs> and now you are you are betraying that. Uh,
1: no, I, well now I feel guilty.
0: As you should. All My right, work I'll is go, done.
1: I'll, I'll go Gallipoli.
0: <laughs> you may continue.
1: Gallipoli or the Day of the Locust. Gallipoli. I would actually go the day of the locust on this one. Really? I would. There's something whacked out about that movie that I still find draws me in and uh yeah, there it's just it's a crazy story and it's this whacked out world of Hollywood that I've never seen portrayed before or since.
0: I uh gosh, I just <laughs> I agree with you on all points, except for the one where you say all that stuff makes you want to rank it higher than Gallipoli. (laughs) It is whacked out, and I haven't seen anything before or since, and I vote Gallipoli.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not too strong on this one, so I'll give you Gallipoli. All right. That'll be my field of dreams, Chit. There you go. All right. 94 out of 136.
0: All right. All right. Yeah. Easy, Mel. <laughs> okay. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I do too. That feels about right. Where do we go from here? This is, this officially is wrapping up next week, our 1981 series, our epic 1981 series.
1: That's right. It so we're going to have to scientific. find some
0: way to to summarize and, dare I say, justify uh 1981.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, I, well, yeah. According to us, I think there's a lot of justification. If you look uh, uh, at the blot score, it may not be quite as high. But, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> we didn't
0: even mention. We we, uh, we failed.
1: Uh, we sure did. Uh,
0: we failed on the blot score last week. Yeah,
1: uh, not a fan of American Werewolf. I, um,
0: I understand that. I do I, I can see I absolutely could see his his point and and he and, uh, he and Amazon definitely agreed on that front.
1: Yes, they did. Yes, indeed. Uh but yeah, we finished out 1981 jumping back to Louis Mall, his other film from 1981, Atlantic City.
0: Are you nervous about this one?
1: I I'm not nervous. Um, I'm curious because I honestly haven't seen this one in quite a while. And, you know, this was a list, I think, where when you and I compiled it, we left off a lot of the 1981 films that are obvious. I mean, we put some on here. But I think we also strove to find some that we didn't remember very well. And, uh, And this is certainly one for me that I just don't remember very well. And I think that was one reason I was excited to see it again, uh, just to kind of go back and revisit the film. I mean, I, I know that I believe Roger Ebert has it on his, you know, his best films list. Those the great movies, um, books that he uh, had put yeah. out. Um, and so this is a film that I, I do want to revisit and uh, definitely am excited to talk about.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, Burt Lancaster and Robert Goulet <laughs> like in the same film. Right. right. Just even on in the same title. <laughs> Gets me a little bit excited about it. Ah
1: uh, yes. And then lovely it, Susan Sarandon. I mean it's uh, And and
0: Wally Sean Yeah. Is the waiter.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I, I, I haven't
0: it. seen this movie in so I mean I'd be hard pressed to even remember what it's about. Yeah. Uh, I'm browsing the cast list here and I I you know it's it's really fuzzy. Uh, so I'm, I am looking forward to it. I'm a little nervous because I, it has such a faint memory for me. But uh, but we'll see. This will wrap up our 1981 series, and uh, we'll see how it stacks up. Um, until then, I think do we, we don't have any more news for the people. I think we're good.
1: I think that's it. All right.
0: I got to go to bed.
1: I'm going to go. Oh, I thought we were going to go run a race now. Man.
0: Last week, uh, Amazon did not approve generally of an American Werewolf, mostly because the movie the, the apparently Amazon felt like the, uh, the quality. quality was terrible. Yeah, how did Amazon feel for you uh, about Gallipol?
1: <laughs> they, you know, um, there are uh, there are only thirteen one star reviews, but they are definitely people who hate this movie. Um, Matt Namer says meh. This is one of the worst war movies I've ever seen. Very long, very boring, absolutely no point. Can't believe I sat through the whole thing. Wow, harsh words. I can't, Matt. I
2: can't
0: either, Matt. I, maybe a different movie would have been better for you. <laughs> I have uh, a one star from Bobby. He says, What happened? Did the film break? Is the last reel missing? Well, damn it. <laughs> we all know that war is hell, at least those of us that have been there do. Rubbing the audience's collective nose in it this way is insulting, self-indulgent on the part of the makers. Their preening, self-perceived moral superiority is offensive to me, as it should be to all decent people who view this tract. I expect most viewers, while feeling insulted and cheated, will feign approval simply because they fear being seen as Neanderthal blockheads. Most people, while not lacking in moral feelings are quite short on fortitude. This would account for most positive comments left here. I never look before I write. If the makers had advertised the true objective of this product, of their cinematic pulpit, they wouldn't have made a nickel. And that's more than they deserved. A cheap shot and a lousy GD movie. Even the first part of the movie was dull and poorly made partly because trivial matters were stretched out to tedious lengths to compensate for the instant denouement. <laughs> right? Wow. That's serious. That is serious. He's really serious about it. I I yeah. apparently and and you as well. Um we are uh, short on fortitude. I didn't I, I, w- I didn't know that.
1: I didn't either, but thank you for pointing it out, Bobby.
0: That's harsh.
1: He's a harsh critic.
0: People are harsh. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I, you know, I people who write the long reviews also, uh, people who write five star reviews also are capable of writing long reviews. So yes, that that's yes, true. But these, that one was serious.
1: That was very hardcore serious. Words
0: like feign. Yeah, he
1: threw some he threw some good words in there, even the denouement.
0: Denouement, he threw Wasn't that in there. Was expecting
1: that out of Bobby.
0: Yeah. Oh, pulpit. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Modified yep. by cinematic. That's right. You oh, and go. you you can't forget that, that chestnut preening self-perceived moral superiority.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Is that like a theremin? Uh, yeah you know
1: you know i always wanted to learn to play the theremin but i haven't
0: i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm